Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and John McManus. So actually, it's We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA, I should say. John, how the how the devil are you? I mean, I've been oh, gosh. Seems like forever, eels. James. I, I've missed you. I'm, I'm doing great. Well, likewise. Uh, you know, I think you can relate to this. When we're in the archives, all's good, right? I mean, uh, mm. that's where I've been. I've been deep in the archives. Time gets sucked away, doesn't it? It just, just disappears. It's sort of... It's sort of oh, I know. I know. It's yeah. just amazing. You look up and you kind of think, God, is it four o'clock already? You think what happened? Where did the where did those weeks yeah. go? <laughs> I know. So, so. so what's this for? I mean, you've obviously you know, Al and I have been reading your your magnificent third part of your um, Pacific trilogy. What what are you what do you want now? What's taking you to the archives? Yeah, so I'm doing a uh, just a full blown biography of General Matthew Ridgway, uh, which uh, is, okay. you know, I think long overdue. I mean, I just think he's one of the most important fascinating American generals in the 20th century. In fact, I I would put him just behind Eisenhower and Marshall. I'd put him ahead of MacArthur on on some levels. MacArthur wouldn't like that, but uh, but Ridgway just has such a dramatic impact. And by the way, not just like World War II onward. Um, he was really, he was the army's leading, um, Latin American specialist. He was fluent in Spanish. Yeah, and, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he goes to Nicaragua and Honduras in the 1920s on the, the sort of election oversight that the, the Americans ran at that point. Uh, and this really creates a base point for him too. Uh, later on, on the eve of World War II, when there's a lot of concern by the Allies that in the Western Hemisphere, the Germans are going to make inroads in Latin American, right. South American countries, Ridgeway becomes a kind of specialist. This is pre Pearl Harbor uh, to shore up those alliances alongside Marshall. And that's, you know, one of the things that really brings him close with Marshall by wartime. So, yeah, so I've been at uh, Army Heritage and Education Center. Um, Favorite place. Going deep into, yeah, oh, mine too. Love it. Also, they're just, they're just such nice people that work there. They're just yeah. unfailingly hel- helpful. What's his name? Thomas. Tom. Um, he's, yeah, Tom um, Buffenberger. He's tremendous. Buffenberger, that's it. He's yep. just literally the most helpful person on the planet. Okay, John, so uh, having brought up Ridgeway, so this, is, this brings me to an essay by Professor Alan R. Millett. Okay. Then he wrote in a book called The D-Day Companion. Leading historians explore history's greatest amphibious assault. Editor Jane Penrose. Okay, so I read this read this book ages ago. And basically the thrust of his argument is that that Maxwell Taylor and Ridgway hate each other's guts so much that they don't cooperate properly on the planning for the D-Day airborne operation. And had they done so, had they gone on better and had they done so, then the much more obvious thing to do would be to have to sort of have one of the uh, um, the 80 seconds on the coast on overlooking Utah and have another one down at kind of Carantan and all the rest of it. And he says, um, the battle would be borne by some 13,000 paratroopers of six airborne regiments wedged between the beach marshes and flooded Murderay River Valley. There was a better option, but it required the cooperation of Maxwell D. Taylor, no friend of either Ridgway or Gavin, who regarded Taylor as a dilettante artilleryman of too much quick intelligence, great charm, sycophantic brilliance, questionable courage and convenient ethics. Ridgway's former chief of staff and division artillery commander, Taylor, had escaped Ridgway's wrath for inattentive work by promotion to brigadier general and a transfer championed by Bradley to the 101st Division. And basically, he's, he, he's implying that, that, that 
Taylor thinks Ridgeway is just a kind of thicko kind of, you know, ignoramus rather than a kind of refined cavalryman that Max. Anyway, I can't find any evidence for this anywhere. There is no citation whatsoever. And so I, I emailed Alan Millett and I said, but, you know, I've always been fascinated by this taken, you know, because, you know, I think you, you know, your point about an alternative plan is a fair one. And, and, but, but where did you get this whole thing about Ridgeway and Taylor hating each other's guts from? Because I've, I've never seen it anywhere. Never answered. <laughs> you never answered. So what's all that about? Yeah. I've never seen that either. I think, and I think in terms of like the Gavin Ridgeway view, he's sort of projecting backward. Um, I don't think. In the spring of 1944, Ridgway felt that way about Taylor. Maybe later in life, after seeing Taylor's performance as chief of staff and joint chiefs of staff and, and, and uh, you know, in Vietnam and all that. But actually, at the time, they were quite close. Uh, Taylor was yeah, Ridgway's protege. That's, that's my understanding. And I, I've, yeah. I've looked at Taylor's writings and I've looked at Ridgway's writings and I can't see any part where he slags him off. Eva slags off the other at all. Right. And Ridgway. And, and not have, even in these, these, these post war interviews with Sidney Matthews and, you know, right. Forrest Polk and everything. Nothing. No, exactly. And, and Ridgway actually, you know, you'll find nary a crossword um, that, he, that he says about Taylor. Uh, you can read between the lines a little bit later in life. But no, I mean, he thought very highly of Taylor. He was his chief of staff. And then obviously he made him his artillery commander. He did very well. Um, Taylor went into the, you know, into Rome famously and helps prevent that disastrous potential drop on Rome. Um, you know, I, I don't know that Ridgway had any big issue. Now, Gavin probably had more issues, but later in life. Um, but I will say this, in, in the case of Gavin, one piece of evidence I can refer to is Gavin will have an interview, and I don't recall precisely which one, uh, in which he he sort of retrospectively thinks of his um, relationship with Taylor, and he remembered him as a TAC officer when Gavin was a cadet at West Point. And he remembered an incident that he felt revealed a little bit about um, what he thought was Taylor's character flaws. Um, just something like that. But that's retrograde. You know, that, that's, <clears throat> that's much, yeah, yeah, much, yeah. much later. Um, you I know, mean, so, I could, uh, the yeah. question I get is that, 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 that both people, both Taylor and Ridgway, are kind of supremely competent. And, and clearly the reason, you know, you can argue that there was a, an alternative way for the airborne, the U.S. airborne drop on D-Day. But but ultimately, the reason the reason it it, it doesn't happen quite the, perhaps the way it should do is because it's hastily cobbled together at the last minute because there's a change of plan. You know, instead of putting 82nd Airborne on the west coast, they're suddenly brought into the middle because and to get the high ground and 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 that's a last minute change. And you know, frankly, it looks okay on paper. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't I don't think you know the plan is particularly problematic. It's it only becomes problematic once you realise that actually. Fourth Division, the infantry division, have landed further south, so the not top bit is kind of less important. And, and the inability to get Carantan, the hinge between the the Cotentin Peninsula and and the rest of the Normandy bridgehead, is is suddenly kind of obviously much more important than it might have first seemed. That's the flaw in it. But right, they're adjusting. They're adjusting to <clears throat> photo recon too. Right, and and you don't really see any uh, any sign of any any schism between the senior commanders whatsoever. So I well, I'm glad you put that to rest. Okay, well, I will I will never um I will disregard that from now on. But right, but I remember rightly. Yeah, go on. Uh, uh, you know, I was just looking at the Taylor papers last week and his major oral history that he did in the 1970s uh, for the Army War College. And he was talking about his relationship with Ridgeway. So this is, you know, post-retirement for Taylor. And, and uh, he's in his 70s, I guess, at that point. And what he talked about is that he was joking that he always followed Ridgeway in a sense. And he was talking about being a protege of Ridgeway and respectfully. And actually, I think, was quite complimentary to Ridgeway. And I, I, I don't really know of any instance in which Taylor is really quite critical of Ridgeway or anything like that. It's kind of hard to be on some levels if you want to be intellectually honest. Uh, I, I mean, I guess like a, a lot of us get impressions over time, I suppose, because we get we end up with a good feel for people in situations that we're studying. And uh, maybe Alan just simply felt that there was tension there at the time, or maybe he talked to officers or whatever who felt that uh, but couldn't really do that for attribution. I don't really know. I, I couldn't say. But personally, me, I don't see a lot of evidence at the time. No. Well, I, I, as I said, I never have at all. So I kind of find it odd. I don't know. You know, it's just it, every so often you come across these histories which have, have well, you know, I was sort of thinking about, uh, of course, I was thinking about sort of the, the, the quote in Raleigh Trevelyan that, that 
Alexander was incensed about Mark Clark turning up into the Auburn Hills, for example. You know, th- there is literally no evidence for it. <laughs> you know, there is there is no evidence for that comment at all, apart from an unsourced quote from Harold Macmillan in the nineteen sixties. I mean, it's kind of a bit like this. You know, it's kind of it's unsourced. It's not. Isn't, there's no citation. There's no evidence of where he's got that from. He's never replied to my email. That doesn't really mean anything. But but I mean, you know, it's just it's just surprising. Anyway, I will disregard it now. But you've been looking at other stuff, haven't you? You've looked at, at um, some of the Mark Clark interviews. It's interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I was I looking at some of the Mark Clark it. interviews. Yeah, because obviously they were classmates, Clark and Ridgeway. And yep. and really, I think, had a good relationship, had great respect for each other. And it was interesting to, to see the Sidney Matthews interviews with uh, interview with Clark in 1948. And I immediately thought of you, of course. I mean, I, yeah. because because <laughs> Clark was saying some reason somewhat incendiary things about eighth army about the british and and uh things that are, that he certainly wouldn't have said in 1944 obviously but um i don't know it's I very just, interesting because that diary of his that he keeps during the war which one of his clerks you know one of his aides sort of types up for him every single day so he's always in the third person it's very funny you know he does let off steam to that you you can see him prancing around his caravan or his camp dictating this to the the stenographer the clerk who's kind of t- nodding it all down and 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 you can see him getting in a state of blue funk at the planning stage of Diadem. You know, I know the plan is, you know, they, Alex has told me I'm going to get Rome and bloody Lise is going to come in and with his eighth army and think he can trump me. Well, I'll tell him something else. And, you know, and absolutely getting himself in a complete lather over nothing. But, but, but of course, it doesn't come to come to pass. And, you know, eighth army is languishing down in the Leary Valley after the, uh, you know, and, and, and the, Fifth Army is taking the lead, so it's all absolutely fine. And the moment that happens, there's moments he realizes he's got a kind of straight run into, you know, Eighth Army is not going to trump him at Rome. All of that kind of anxiety, all that kind of het upness, all just just melts away. But I think, yeah, but but the criticisms have been extensive by 1948, and and, and the personality digs and the, the stuff literature starting to come out. So my interpretation of the of him being a little bit harsh on the British in 1948 is defensive kind of trying to put his side over you know he's been got out about the rapido he's been got out about this he's been got out about valmontoni you know he's sick of it and he wants to kind of try divert a bit of blame i think is is basically what's going on or have a sort of stab back is 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 my sense of it but you there's no the point is there's no sense of it at all at the time and he seems to get on pretty well with mccreary and don't forget when he's bumped up to supreme allied commander i'm not supreme army group commander rather um, of of fifteen army group in the in in the end of nineteen forty four. His eighth army commander now is is McCreary, because Lisa's being bumped upstairs to um, uh, up to the far east. They get on fine, you know. There there is there is absolutely no indication at all. And don't forget, of course, they know each other pretty well by now because McCreary has served under Clark for a long time. You know, tenth corps commander and in invasion of Salerno, all the way pretty much up through. Um, up to up to the fall of Rome, and then goes over to Eighth Army, then becomes Eighth Army commander. McCreary does that is, and then serves underneath Mark Clark. I don't see any tension at all. So I, I, I think there's a lot of kind of post-war kind of jostling for reputation. And, well, and and they're not together anymore, and they're so not together. Have anymore. to get along with them because you could also look at it as okay. Now the real feelings can come out because now I guess he so. doesn't he doesn't have to worry about working with them anymore so he thinks um yeah maybe i mean who maybe. knows but but also he's i think in his in, trying to protect his own reputation as well of course he's had the the row with the 36th division and texas and all that business and yeah, yeah uh, exactly you know exactly. So it's all pretty fresh but i don't know i just think it's interesting but I, but i think too yeah. it's it's a sort of study in how we sometimes have a different take throughout our lives you know yeah. like when the event happens in the in the moment contemporary very different than where you may look at something 30, 40, 50 years on. Um, and then, of course, you're affected by what's happened in that in those decades, right? And, and the attitudes yeah, yeah, you yeah. sense and all this other kind of stuff. So yeah. I, think, I think you've made a really good point that the contemporary sources are a lot of times the very best ones that you, that you go on. Well, yeah. And I guess the other thing, of course, is is that you you can like someone and think they're okay and, and pretty good bloke and all the rest of it. But then, you know, there's a couple of things come in and you kind of think, well, I really like them still, but professionally, you know, you know jury's out. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're being asked to comment by Sidney Matthews in 1948 about professional things, not personality. And, you know, you 
had time to reflect and analyze and think back on it and stuff. And maybe you have sort of slightly changed your views. I, I suppose, I suppose the long and short of it is I, I you know, I, I wouldn't read too much into it is, is, is a, is a long and short of it. I mean, generally speaking, I get irritated by kind of, you know, journo historians who kind of, um, tend to kind of overplay anglophobia and, and americophobia on the senior commanders I, I you know what i see is for the most part them all getting on pretty well you know you have personality clashes of course you know and, and you have arguments and, and national interests come into it and decisions and stuff but for the most part i think it's a it's a you can't get on with absolutely everybody of course but i think it's been really really overcooked and i think people cherry pick choice lines rather than sort of seeing things in the round and, and very often you know you very often you see you see you know someone sort of going well you know i think i don't know such and such is lacking grip or you know they're not they're not quite you know he's been really annoying and and then next wednesday you know it's kind of such and such came over dinner when we had a really good time you know so it's kind of you know what you what you're what you're saying into your diary your sort of your your means of letting off steam on tuesday doesn't necessarily mean you hate that guy's guts and you never want to see him again you know you might be kind of besties again by thursday so right that's my point i just think all this stuff always needs to be seen in context i think the danger of cherry picking pithy one-liners it kind of it's slightly picking a, li- a one liner to fit your argument rather than the other way around. I mean, you need to see stuff in the round. Anyway, true of um, yeah. it is true of everything, of course. But but John, I um, I, I wanted to go back to um, back to the, the the U.S. Army in the Pacific Theater at the end of the war. And um, last time we talked, we were still on kind of Luzon um, and talking about the amazing efforts of the 11th Airborne and Corregidor and all the rest of it. One of the things that kind of really struck me about your book was just the scale of it. And I know, you know, you know, everyone knows I'm a bit obsessed with the operational level. And, and, you know, I don't mind putting my hand up on that one. But I just think, you know, sometimes we just skirt over this stuff. It's kind of, it, there's, there's just an assumption that, that, infantrymen will land on a beach that they'll they'll be in a mountain that the, the ammunition will come up that, that someone will be evacuated because they've had a leg blown off or whatever and, and you just sort of you know historians are so sort of keen or, or, or documentary makers are so keen to tell us the action that they actually miss out the context and i think w- one of the things that really really struck me about 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 to the end of the earth is that you you don't kind of pass up on that at all the scale of operations undertaken in the Philippines is absolutely jaw-dropping. And and let's face it, you know, I'm kind of getting quite used to jaw-dropping scale of operations <laughs> over the last few years of studying this stuff. But really, the transformation of the U.S. Army and, of course, you know, armed forces, I should say, um, in, in the Philippines is just amazing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it you know, is. 20, you know, Sixth Army goes into Luzon with 25,000 pints of whole blood. I mean... That's a lot to bring in, in, in mm-hmm. you know, not quite with your first wave, but not far behind it. Most of which is refrigerated. I mean, that's, that's planning, isn't it? That's absolute planning. Think all the medical coordination and the personnel who are trained to handle it, uh, the storage, the movement. I mean, just for that one item, much less all yeah. the other medical supplies. Um, there's 11,000 short tons of material moving across the Lingayan beaches every day. Uh, and yet the Just problem is that. unloading a lot of this stuff because yeah. the, the tides are really difficult and the, you know, the, the right. swells are awful and it's crashing against the beach. And, and uh, yeah, you, you yeah. Know, so the problem is a lot of this stuff is a board ship. So imagine if you had a schedule, you know, in which all this material is supposed to be ashore and now you're behind schedule. Um, how do you adjust? To yeah, that? because I think that's actually really, really worth explaining. Because, because again, this is all part of the kind of you know the the, the assumptions we make when we're reading about about, about the war. You know, again, it, it just all kind of sort of happens. You know, you you've seen scenes and beaches where there's loads and loads of boxes and all the rest of ammunition or rations or whatever it might be, and it just sort of somehow happens. I remember talking to a, 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 became a great friend of mine, Tom Neal, who was a Battle of Britain fighter pilot. And I said, did you ever wake up in the morning and, and you didn't have the full complement of Hurricanes in 249 Squadron? And he went, never. He said, don't know where they came from, how they got there. Maybe they were delivered by angels. But every morning we had the full complement of Hurricanes in the squadron again. And I always thought that was kind of, you know, which which the Luftwaffe at that time absolutely did not, incidentally. But I thought that was just amazing. And, and of course, you know, a lot of the guys on the ground just assume it or just, just you know, that's just... Well, so, yeah, that, some, that's... But you've got, you, you've got X amount of shipping. You've got X amount of trips in a day from the mothership back to the kind of, 
you know, to the beaches back and forth in your landing craft, your salt craft, or whatever it might be, or ducks, or or whatever. Every single shipping has to have a plan to it with its cargo, and that has to be worked out way beforehand. So you then have to you have to have the basin back in the US working out where stuff is going to be allocated. It then has to be sailed around oceans to get to where you want it to get to. Then it has to be transported into other ships and other bases. Then it has to be transported from the big ships, the freighters, onto assault craft, which can then, on landing craft, that can then get to the beach and get on the ground. I mean, and every single part of that has to be planned beforehand, which is why the schedules that you're talking about are so important. And adjusted. And yeah, so the combat perspective is always, yeah, this stuff just appeared. We totally expected that. And and all of us would have that perspective. If we're on the front lines fighting for our lives every day, we figure, well, the least these people who are safer can do is make sure I get all the stuff that I need. And that is definitely always the American perspective, especially, too, because we expect that we ought to be able to go into combat and still have popcorn and, and candy and, you know, whatever else it is that the Americans think is owed them, you know, then that, that style living. So that adds to this even more, by the way, you know, because yeah, of course. if you're the logistician, you're under that pressure. Because you're going to get complaints. Hey, you know, we don't have camel cigarettes, you know, uh, for infantrymen. Or, you know, we don't have enough K rations of this type or C ration spaghetti and meatballs, which is what the guys like. You're sending too much, um, you know, you're sending too much chicken loaf forward or, you know, so so there's that element to it as well. But, yeah, I mean, especially like at Luzon, unloading these ships is a nightmare. Um, And so it's like also what do we do in terms of the labor? Because, of course, uh, the combat is eating up manpower um, and you don't have enough service troops. And so they're trying to hire Filipino labor. Um, so the Filipinos are a major force multiplier, certainly in terms of the guerrilla operators and the the, the, the pro-American population. Uh, but the people who I think among the Filipinos who don't get proper credit a lot of times are those who are working in those unglamorous jobs for the Americans, unloading the ships, um, setting up the depots, moving stuff forward, Operating the trains, there's rail lines, too, that are on Luzon, and yeah, so the yeah. Americans are trying to improve upon them to move a lot of the stuff forward, and then eventually carrying parties. You know, if we're fighting in the hills of Luzon, we got to carry this stuff forward somehow. Of course. And if we got a rifle company, as you know, we can't, you know, siphon off 100 guys to go carry stuff forward all the time. they got to be fighting. So how do we do that? And and so some Filipinos are risking their lives alongside the, the Army service troops, too. Um, and it takes us into another corner of the war, too, which I don't think is as well known, is a lot of the service troops, and not just at Luzon, but I'm talking elsewhere in the Pacific, are African-Americans who have been put in this position because of the Jim Crow realities. Right. Um, you know, because like, oh, well, that's a tertiary thing, and we think that's all they can handle. You know, this racism, this institutional racism. And yet, really, when we begin to sort of deconstruct this and flip it around and think about it, actually, this is one of the most vital roles of the whole war. Like you said, all yeah. the shipping, who has to do this labor, who has to do it in well, and also who works conditions. out what goes where and everything. It's just who, do, and that's a lot of African American troops. I mean, I know what it's like and, trying to kind of load up for for, for the summer holiday and the, you know trying to load up the car. I mean, I that's bad enough. But I mean, you got you got to think. Okay, that will fit in this you know in this bulkhead. I know of this ship. Like the, exactly the storage. And by, by 1945, you know, the Army and Navy logistical thinkers had really become quite good at, at figuring out space. Because, of course, obviously, right. they have to be. And everything has to of go course. over a ship somewhere. So how they're loading things is very, very much worked out beforehand. Because, obviously, you want the most important stuff offloaded first. So that's loaded last onto the ship, all that kind of stuff. The Army has a different perspective than the Navy in terms of how to use stuff when it's ashore. The Navy is like, okay, once it's off, it's off. We don't care about it. But the Army is like, no, we need it a certain way in order to get the best use out of it and to protect our guys and and, and guard against spoilage, especially yep. for food and for whole blood, you know, like of, you were yep. saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can yeah. you imagine it's, it's, it? It's, you know, it's, 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 it's absolutely mind-boggling. So anyway, hold that thought because I've got something I want to – put to you uh we're just going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more philippine stuff um, logistics and action in southern philippines after the break hola hello this call is being translated abuela listen to what my phone can do abuela escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer wow ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva wow 
Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And we've just been talking about logistics, favorite subject of mine, um, on Luzon in the northern part of the Philippines. John, you know, roughly how, how big is Sick Farmy, Kruger's Sick Farmy? Six yeah, I mean, what are you talking about? Is, oh, like half a million men, 250,000 men? What, what is it? Yeah, oh, easily about a half a million. You've got about four divisions that go ashore initially. But you've yep. got at least four to six others that are going to be in play as well. Uh, okay, so four divisions is uh, about sixty thousand men times two hundred and twenty. So, so one hundred twenty thousand kind of pretty much fighting men, and then fighting the rest are all kind of servicemen. And then we've got all the attachments, and we got all the service and all that. And of course, it grows in the course of the campaign. Yep. And then it's a little confusing because sometimes. A division is assigned to Sixth Army, sometimes Eighth Army, or Independent, right. or whatever. But yeah. uh, you know, th- but the folks who who uh, I think also are a big part of this, you know, and and are sort of overlooked are the aviation engineers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about the Pacific War and you think about the building of airfields, you always think the Seabees, you know, the Navy yes. construction battalion. They become very famous, and they should because they did an amazing job. But sort of in a way it's a microcosm because it's kind of like the marine corps versus the army the marine corps did an amazing job too but there just weren't that many of them the right. same thing here there weren't that many cbs in relation to u.s army aviation engineers well this is my point because uh, you know in, in british second army in northwest europe i think it's like 14 percent infantry eight percent in armor 22 percent en- artillery 18 percent engineers 43 percent service corps mm. yeah and that is, right is that there. sort of comparable? Is that comparable with with Sick Farmy? I, I don't say? know the percentages, but it, it's but, probably but ballpark. Ballpark, yeah. Um, and and it's yeah, absolutely. It, it'd be like the aviation engineers are a classic example. Uh, they're just doing enormous tasks, and and especially yeah. once the Americans take Clark Field and you know that big airfield yep. complex northwest of because Manila. Because you've got to you've got to bulldoze all the clear all the damage. You've got to build yep. new stuff. You've got to expand it, and this all has to happen literally with a click of a fingers, isn't it? I mean, it does. You know, we, we want you to be running up everybody by yeah, yeah, because we don't have running by next Wednesday. We don't have carrier. The aircraft carriers aren't there. I mean, obviously, the major fleet carriers are not going to be hanging around, you know, <laughs> waiting to get hit in yep. Philippines waters. They want to be in the open ocean. So in order to get that close air support, we've got to get these airfields ready. At Clark Field alone, um, the Japanese sewed hundreds of bombs, uh, aviation bombs, in the complex all over the place, Um, all kinds of ordnance that they could. And so you're having to do this exacting job of find that stuff, disarm it, blow it in place. If you blow it in place, of course, then you got to repair the damage. Mm-hmm. So you got to worry about that too. You got to recover equipment. You got to bring in equipment. Bulldozers are like gold. 
I would love to find the statistics of the number of bulldozers compared to the number of tanks that were in yeah in, that'd be interesting in, in, in world war ii because i reckon it's i mean you never have to go very far to kind of see bulldozers and graders i mean yeah. literally everywhere and they're 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 out there on the first morning of every amphibious invasion and it, especially the tank dozers, that dozer. amalgam that amalgam yeah. that the americans are going to have too the tank dozers are also even more yeah. like gold because it, i mean obviously they're a weapon yeah. too so it's yeah all this is going on and here's another example james is um, like the movement of Sixth Army from the beaches yep. to, to Manila, which is more ponderous than, than MacArthur shot it, thought it ought to be, and, and, and I agree with them. But in Kruger's defense, the commander of Sixth Army, um, there were 217 wooden bridges that were out in, the, in that span of terrain. So each one of those has to be rebuilt by engineers. Now, we can slog infantry across some of these streams or whatever, but vehicles tanks you know all of that kind of stuff so that's a major engineering problem and that's what typifies something of the luzon campaign you're operating on those circumstances yeah and also those wooden bridges even when they did exist were probably not suitable for taking yeah. you know 150 jimmies <laughs> and german, exactly. 30 ton german tanks and so you would have had to I mean, improve upon them anyway i know yeah, yeah that's right and maybe blow some of them in place in favor of bailey bridges or whatever um i don't know but yeah, that's that's one problem Kruger's having. He's worried about that, and he's worried about his flank, you know, to the east, uh, that the Japanese are going to attack these kind of vulnerable uh, lines of advance. Um, now, the Japanese don't necessarily have that capability, fortunately, because they don't have the mobility. <clears throat> they do come out of the hills. You can just nail them with your firepower. Uh, so I think that that concern was sort of in vain and sort of, sort of classical uh, sort of, you know, military school thinking versus like adapting to the actual situation. Uh, and Kruger's taken, you know, a lot of heat from historians over that. I think, I think maybe properly, but I also will say in his defense that he's got this serious logistical problem. And then uh, that, that, and that's I think always going to be true. I, well, I, you know, I mean, I've, I remember, you know, reading this diary of this, this, this British gunner officer who, had, you know, he was a commander of a, of a, a battery of 25 pounders and the descriptions of just getting these, 25 pounders to move from a to b in sicily you know across these ta- these roads are you know it's one road up to the town going up which is obviously perched on a hill then incredibly narrow roads which are not suitable for quads and limbers and 25 pounders but they somehow kind of sort of work away through it the other side of it they're kind of in range of the germans the germans have blown up a road anyway so the engineers have got to kind of work out a little sort of bypass you know just the whole process of getting that plus the trucks you know with all the ammunition and supplies and all the rest of it up into one town, through it, outside the other one, down into the valley, dig in again, get set up a new gun position. You sort of think, that's why it takes so long. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, you can only do what you can do on the roads that you've got. And if all the bridges are down and there aren't any roads, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, the engineers are just, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the unsung heroes, aren't they? They really are. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I was also looking at just the fact that you were saying, saying air and ground vehicles made 160,000 life-saving trips over the course of the campaign in Luzon. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. 160,000 air or vehicle Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a few of them by helicopter, which, of course, anticipates the future. Uh, not many, but a few. But what they're doing in the, in the – you already see this at Leyte – um, in the fall of 44, you'll see it again at, Lu- at Luzon is, you know, you got units operating deep in the hills and mountains, and really they don't have an actual linear line of supply. They're operating out there on their own uh, as light infantry, very similar to Merrill's Marauders too. Um, so they're going to have supplies dropped to them. And then in terms of casualty evacuation, they're going to use these small planes that could be landed, you know, in a little field. Oh, these sort of L5 liaison planes. Yeah, exactly. And and so they're going to evacuate these casualties in ones and twos. And that adds up over time. I think that's the part that's really kind of, the, that, you know, when I was researching this, it made me kind of step back and say, whoa, that is really amazing. Because that means a lot of, a lot of uh, sorties going in and out to get guys, a lot of loading them aboard that plane, which was very exacting too. Yeah, it yeah. depends on how you're wounded, of course, but it's usually the mm-hmm. worst of you know, worse wounded they're being evacuated this way yeah um and that's you know if you're fortunate then you can get them out that way more typically what's happening deep in the hills of luzon is carrying parties 
having to lug a guy on a litter three miles, five miles, whatever, up and down the hills, through gorges, whatever. It's very similar to Italy, actually, that you know, if you're wounded up there somewhere, you're, you're in some trouble and it's going to be tough to get you out. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is just so remote, isn't it? And of course, where you've got jungle and where you've got remote conditions, and you have you know, you've got you're, you're having to undergo undertake quite a lot of privations just to kind of exist there. You know, you're also going to have lots of disease, you know, dysentery and you know, yellow fever and dengue fever and all sorts of malaria and malaria particularly, oh, of course. Malaria. You know, I mean, all this stuff which is incredibly debilitating. So not only are you suffering from from you know, battle casualties, you've also got sickness, which of course far outweighs any battle casualties. And obviously it's the same for both sides, but, 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 you know, there's a reason why Japan's losing the war. It's because it can't cope with all that. But, but then there's a reason why us is, is winning because it can, but, but even so the plans that have to be put in place to deal with that, because also illness and casualties are such a morale sapper and they know it, you know, you've got to know that you're being looked after, uh, and it sucks away manpower, of course. Then you've got to then have then then your additional problem is you've then got to have vast field hospitals of, of, of a sea of tents that have to be erected, staff have to be brought in, medical equipment has to be brought in. You know, medical equipment is quite difficult to transport because it's by its very nature it's quite delicate. A lot of it, so you've got all that as well on top of your engineers who are trying to repair repair bridges and blah blah blah. I mean, it's, so it goes water. on. It's it's it's. And especially water. the medical yeah, people yeah. need water lots of it yeah. um and not just drinking water but water for operating you know i mean all of these kinds of things so the, so i think in my opinion sixth army and the army in general are very disingenuous in the way they reported the casualties um because they report about thirty-eight thousand, roughly uh battle casualties killed wounded missing the classic kind of thing but actually there's ninety-three thousand four hundred so-called non-battle casualties that six army suffers on Luzon. Um, they're all related to battle. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to have malaria unless you're deep in the hills of Luzon getting bitten by mosquitoes. You're not going to have immersion foot unless you're fighting up there or yellow fever or combat fatigue, of course, obviously. Um, so really when you think about that, the casualties are beyond staggering and I think are on par with like the fall of 44 under Eisenhower in, in Europe, um, Grant's overland campaign in the Civil War, Argonne Forest. If we're thinking about previous American experiences, this one is right up there. Um, you know, so so Kruger's losing a lot of manpower. And just think about that. We were talking about, what was it, 120 to 150,000 combat soldiers or whatever. Okay, well, now we've lost all of them. You know, if we're really thinking about the, co- <laughs> the sort of battle and non-battle casualties, right? I mean, that's kind of where it sinks home, doesn't it? And then you have the replacement problem. How do we get them in? How do we get them forward? How do we, are they trained? Are they And of course, like you said, Japan is losing the war because it's managing this even worse. Um, at least the Americans can treat their casualties and they, they can replace people and stuff and all that. The, the Japanese can't. And so by the end of this campaign, uh, certainly by the summer 1945, um, if you're a Japanese soldier who's still alive at that point, the bigger peril to your life at that stage is disease and starvation rather than American ordnance. And there's still a lot of American ordnance coming down on you. Um, wait, I don't know if you, if you remember this from the book, but this is something that really has stood out to me to this point. This is in one infantry regiment. This is the 130th infantry of the 33rd division, just fighting in Luzon, you know, so four month period. The staff calculated that for every casualty inflicted on the Japanese, you needed about 300 pounds of ordnance. Wow, yeah, it's a lot. Isn't that crazy? That's absolutely insane. That's absolutely amazing. And and the, and the Luzon battle just sort of goes on and on and on until the end of the war. You know, I mean, hardly, but but it still does. But in the meantime, MacArthur's not, not satisfied with just getting Luzon and, and, and Leyte. He wants Mandanao, he wants Cebu, yeah. he wants some of these other islands – you know, and you can argue um, that it was completely unnecessary. It's a bit like sort of Peladu or something. You know, why did you just leave them there? I mean, they're not going anywhere and nothing's going to come into them. So why bother? But he does bother. He does. And it, to him, the point of this campaign is to truly liberate the Philippines and its people. Um, and, of course, it's, it's not like Luxembourg or something where, you know, it's a small little cohesive country and you got it. Uh, it's 7,000 plus islands. So a lot of different places, cultures and whatnot. So what we're talking about is some pretty major, major amphibious operations here to liberate 
the rest of the archipelago from like the central part downward to the south. Um, and of course, Eighth Army under Eichelberger gets that job. And what's what's I think fascinating about it, here's a guy who's been succeeding through the whole war, who's already proven himself, I, I think, as the best ground commander in theater, arguably in the war among the Americans. And yet this is his sort of golden moment when all of his training, all of his experience, and the fact that he now has a really good field army under his command, all that coalesces. Um, in addition to having the naval Why? power, because 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 Eighth Army, uh, you know, he's a, he's had it long enough to be able to shape it, and you know, his his subordinate commanders are all of the same mindset. You know, I mean, that's so important, isn't it? He, he carries out over thirty five amphibious invasions in the course of just a couple of months. Absolutely amazing. But but really but the is. point is, he's able to do that because his vision on how you do these operations has been, you know, that, that by osmosis and by kind of by experience has, has kind of filtered down through all the all the individual units within Eighth Eighth Army, and everyone's kind of bought, bought into it, haven't they? they you have. know, it's a bit like General Tuca with the Fourth Indian Division, you know, which operates in North Africa and 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 Italy, you know. They're all they'll get they're in a, they're a different mindset to everyone else in Eighth Army because of Tuca, because of how he trains them and how he instructs his subordinate commanders and all the rest of it. It's the same as I guess is going on with, with Eichelberger. But it, but he, he introduces some quite radical new ways of doing things, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, because I mean we're just talking logistics, and of course the the, the typical American approach was you would have a certain number of supplies in reserve, probably floating reserve now. Um, you know, say, uh, say 30 to 60 days worth of supplies. Um, he, he makes that leaner because he knows he can, because he knows he has the mobility, uh, to move supplies from place to place and that he's got the coordination. He's got the staff for it. He's, he's got good inter-service relations. Um, and, and I think this allows his operations to be quicker, more nimble. Um, it allows him to anticipate better. It's risky in the sense that you could get involved in a heavy fight, and uh, and run out of stuff if you've only got two weeks on hand versus thirty to sixty days, but it never happens because he he's a, he's also got a good intel, and I think that again I, I keep mentioning this, but it's worthwhile. He's got Filipino guerrillas who are giving him pretty good intel, and of course some of them are Americans working with Filipinos too. I should point out. Uh, but that's a really good force multiplier in addition to all these other strengths he's got. So when you look at his campaign that spring uh, and early summer, he's just constantly out fighting, out thinking, uh, outwitting the Japanese at every and turn. And outmaneuvering them. And outmaneuvering completely, them. Completely. And out, you know, so out everything. And so sometimes he's right there in combat, you know, with the lead units as is his want. Other times he's kind of like an orchestra, um, a symphony, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. conducting a symphony chorus kind of thing, where, right. where he's just sort of orchestrating this whole thing as he's flying around from place to place or ship to ship or whatever he's doing um, and working on it administratively. He, and this is, I think, another strength that he knows when and where to pick his spots. Um, that's always the, the dilemma for a commander, isn't it? Where to place yourself on the battlefield. And, and I think Eichelberger has really mastered that quite well. An example I'd give you, um, Duke Arnold, who commanded the Americal Division, who, which is one of the key divisions that's going to carry out these campaigns, uh, will later really laud Eichelberger as just a, a, a really good boss because he would let Arnold sort of run his battle, but he'd be there and accessible for support. Uh, and he didn't, and he knew how to somehow come forward with Arnold's people without stepping on Arnold's toes. Cause that's the challenge too, isn't it? We can all sort of look good and valorous go into the front lines as a, as an army commander or something, but you could be stepping on the toes of the division commander, the corps commander, the, the regimental commander in some ways too. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. you have to, ma- you have to really sort of master that art. And I think Eichelberger had done that pretty well. Also, you know, you, you liberate 7 million people and you do it at the loss of 2,000 U.S. lives and a few thousand more wounded. Um, and that's a lot, of course. But when you consider the vastness of this and the slog that's going on on Luzon <laughs> or at Okinawa, uh, which is happening at the same time, uh, I think it's, it's it seems a lot cheaper, too. Uh, but also, I should point out, in fairness, like we were talking, context is important. The Japanese aren't in good shape either. Um, no, you know, of course. So, but, but they're not the they're time, even worse shape on Luzon, and it still takes a right long, long exactly. Long to get they're them always out, dangerous so. too. So yeah, 
Yeah, it really yeah. is amazing. And there's always, there's always, yeah, there's always sort of problems lurking. The enemy is still a dangerous enemy, even if they're kind of beaten and they're starving. I mean, yep, yeah, because they're going to fight to the death usually, and that anyone who's going to who's going to do that is going to be dangerous. And they've got. Weapons, and what's absolutely course, clear as well is that everyone is, you know, McCarthy's crowing about this. You know, this he's absolutely beside himself with joy that this campaign in the South has gone so quickly that it's been so comparatively. Uh, um, sort of blood-free in the big scheme of things. Um, uh, and a huge amount of credit is, is, is looks like it's heading Eichelberger's way. And it sort of does, but that's it. So he's a major general, isn't he, still at this time, I think, isn't he? He's a lieutenant he's still, general. He's a, he's a lieutenant general. Okay, lieutenant general, yeah. So he's a three-star, but he's, he, you know, he should easily become a four-star for this, and he, and he doesn't. Yeah, he wants to become doesn't a four-star. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get promoted. He doesn't get the big press back home. Exactly, nothing, which is what he wants. I mean, if there's, I mean, that's what Eichelberger wants: military immortality, um, as as much as anything else. Um, just like his his dear friend and classmate George Patton, whom we all know about. You mentioned that name. Anybody, even somebody who doesn't even know anything about World War II, knows him. Eichelberger yeah. wanted that, yeah. and he never got it. Um, and I, I think a reason he never got it is MacArthur, of course, but but also where he fought. I mean, it's a very different proposition to, to be liberating France with your tanks and whatnot and coming to the rescue during the Battle of the Bulge versus fighting on, on Cebu, right? Yeah, um, I guess. But know. I guess he also kind of, you know, maybe he didn't think, you know, maybe none of those out there kind of thought that way because, you know, it's a it's a American territory or had been for a long time as amazing American ties in a way that perhaps there aren't to Normandy. Yeah, right. You know, that's know. because... Technically, these are American, they're, they're an American province. So they're sort of right. American citizens at that point. Obviously, so you'd have thought everyone back home would be really interested in this. Yeah. But the point and, is, and they they you know, there is, the, I know, and they were, and there was lots of kind of news at the time and all the rest of it. But the point is, is that no further glory came Michael Berger's way. The war then ended. You know, he's kind of sort of slightly sidelined. You know, that's that. No one remembers it now. No one's ever heard of Cebu. Um, very few people have even heard of Eichelberger. You know, he's he's a forgotten man. Which, for someone who was so competent, is is a you know, it's really unfair, isn't it? I think it's a shame, not just for him and his sake, but from learning from history. I, I think he's someone you know, like if you're interested in how to run military operations well and how to be a good senior leader, he's someone worth studying because I think you can you can learn a great deal from that, and also just on a human level too. I think he shows you that you can be a really good high level leader without being a complete jerk or anything, you know, you (laughs) still have some humanity. Yeah, You don't have to be some sort of massive, arrogant, egocentric kind of self-publicist narcissist. You can actually be a good guy um, and still deliver the goods. And he really does, isn't he? I mean, he, he it's fascinating he how little he's known, considering how good he is as a commander. And, and I, I guess the one sort of reward he had at the time was if there was to be an invasion of Japan, 8th Army was to have what, what I, in, in my opinion, was, was the leading role. Um, now, of course, 6th Army was going to be uh, launching Operation Olympic, the invasion of Kyushu in November of 45, but Operation Cornet was you know, the capstone of the whole thing to go and get Tokyo and eighth army would have had the leading role there. Um, but it, you know, what I found Jim is that it was interesting among like Kruger and Eichelberger staffers. Cause of course Kruger and Eichelberger famously didn't get along and had this rivalry and all that. Um, and so later you see them kind of digging into each other, you know, in, later in life, especially after the two generals were dead. And they both argued that the the evidence that MacArthur held our guy in higher esteem was that we got this operation. And so, like, the Sixth Army people are arguing that Olympic was the main operation, and that's why he went to Kruger, because he, like, and then the Eichelberger people are saying, well, it was Cornet. So that showed that MacArthur wanted the, you know, wanted Eichelberger for the more important role and all that. Well, if I'm trying to step back from this as an historian and I ask myself, okay, if I'm invading Japan, what's the most important objective? Is it Kyushu or is it Tokyo? I think it's pretty obvious what that is. <laughs> but I also think that if we really tried to be more dispassionate about it, we'd say MacArthur had great confidence in both these guys and for good reason, you know, and, uh, you know, all the bickering and all that, so the backbiting is just all that. Um, these were two very successful commanders. 
who were different, though, in their operational outlook and and are both worth studying, I think. Very, very successful campaign in the Philippines, ultimately. I mean, Very much so. Hopes and aspirations at the start of it might have been that it was all over in blink of an eye or whatever. But but the reality of it is, geographically, it's such a tough nut. Before you've actually sort of taken into consideration that there's Japanese who, who are going to fight to the death as well. That actually to do what they do over these this vast array of islands and such difficult terrain and jungle and all the rest of it is extraordinary. And I just think it's amazing, you know. That my own view is is that you know by 1945 the U.S. armed forces are the best in the world, bar none. You know, they they just are, and and it's it's a combination of that huge material wealth combined with learning the lessons. And you sort of see that here in in Eighth Army's operations, I think, in Southern southern philippines where eichelberger is combining all that he's combining that incredible logistic strength that long tail that big war as i call it um, um with dynamic um exciting new tactics with confidence uh, and making the most of this these assets they have to complete a campaign actually in pretty quick order and it's and it's super impressive. It it, it just is. It's, it's such an eye opener, and it shows you what can be done. And it's kind of amazing how quickly all this stuff gets forgotten again, isn't it? You know, I know. So and it's a shame Vietnam and, and all the rest of it. And- well, and it, what you have is this kind of sweet spot between the military professionalism of an Eichelberger with a citizen soldier army that has been now sort of hardened into this this very very effective kind of military organization. Uh, with with a lot of buy-in from these ordinary guys, whether they're unloading ships or whether they're carrying rifles or they're in tanks, whatever it is, um, Eichelberger has turned them into really good professional soldiers, even though most of them don't want to be there. Yeah, so I think it was a point of frustration for a lot of these guys uh, for the rest of their lives that this just wasn't very well known. Um, you know, I, I knew some of them. You know, that that was the sort of gist of it. It's like, yeah, you, you never heard about the fighting on Mindanao? Well, I was there. You know, let me tell you about that. This was what we did was pretty amazing. You know, that and and it was always sort of bounced off in relation to the, the European theater, which was, of course, much better known. Everybody knows about Normandy. But let me tell you about Cebu. Well, I'm finding it all absolutely fascinating. And it doesn't stop there. So, um, you know, next time we should we should talk about um, Vedemar and um, and the Chinese. And we still got to talk about Okinawa and all that kind of stuff as well so there's more more to come that's what we should do in the next few episodes but but um john uh, good good to see you um good to chat as always and um if people haven't rushed out and bought to the end of the earth i just can't recommend it enough it's just such a fascinating book um really 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 brilliant i mean you know john i mean as a historian you're kind of pretty much top of your game so uh, and that comes to the fore in this book i have to say i appreciate it jim very kind thanks so much all right well good uh, thanks for listening everyone and cheerio see ya